thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. This week on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. And then mass disorientation and collision. He impacts about 20 feet beyond my cockpit. I remember being stuck up in my seat and I'm like, what just happened? I reach down to the stick and I'm trying to control the aircraft as I'm like being pushed up in the seat because my aircraft is tumbling through the sky, but I also don't know that at this time. I just remember trying to gain control and nothing, like the aircraft's not talking to me at all. And then I distinctly remember looking up and we have three rear view mirrors in the F-15C and they were completely orange. The plane was completely engulfed in flames. And so I make the decision very quickly after that, like I gotta get out. Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. Hello and welcome to episode 148. I am your host, Jello, and today we are talking saving lives through collision avoidance systems with our two past F-35 guests here on the show, one of whom, as you just heard, was involved in a midair collision back in 2008. We'll get to that in a little bit, and I hope you did your homework by listening past the flyby on episode 147 on flight controls last week. Otherwise, hello again. How are you doing? Let's see what's going on in announcements. If you're listening to this on episode release day, then today is also the first day of the annual EAA Air Venture in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And unfortunately, I won't be there yet again, but Boat will be. You can find him at the NORAD booth in Hangar D today through Wednesday. And one of these years, I need to make plans to get out there because I understand it's pretty amazing. In other news this year, 2022 marks the golden anniversary of the F-15 Eagle. And we'll talk a little bit more about the Eagle uh, here coming up. But a celebration is planned for July 27th. That's just a couple days away at the Boeing plant in St. Louis, where all the F-15s were and are still being produced. And then the next day on the 28th, there will be a static display at the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and a celebration for program office personnel. And on hand will be our old friend here on the show, retired Colonel Cesar Rodriguez. You might remember him. He had three MIG kills and uh, talked about those on the show. Now for listener questions, I received a phone message last week from a retired Navy P3 flight engineer who remarked something about the propeller nomenclature we discussed on last week's episode. But the recording was really difficult to understand. So, Billy, I think you said your name was. If you're out there, please try again. Leave us another message, and hopefully if it's better quality, we can play that on the next episode. Otherwise, let's start this week with a phone call. Hi, Vincent. This is Matthew Symes from Perth, Western Australia. I'm excited that the Bull Creek Aviation Heritage Museum just received a Tornado GR4 airplane. It's so exciting. On a somber note, I noted you recently... We're talking about you're still hurting from the recent death of your brother. I lost my brother five years ago, and I can say that the grieving process gets significantly better as time goes on. You miss them, but it no longer chokes you up. 
You can smile thinking about their memory. On that subject, I was wondering how death is dealt with on an aircraft carrier. I remember you talking about witnessing the deaths of a few friends while at sea. Is there a funeral? Can you go to a ship's psychologist? Is there a culture of being able to cry or show signs of grief about the loss of a friend? Or is that all shut away because of the need to appear big, strong, tough Navy men and women? I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. I hope you have a good day. All right. Thank you, Matthew. Yes. Every time this has happened, in my experience, there has always been a ceremony on either the flight deck or the hangar bay, replete with taps, a 21-gun salute, and then there's you know program and someone makes remarks, of course. And then the really hard part, actually, is when they send the body off with the escort on the flight deck. And there's usually a gauntlet of either squadron mates or folks in the different flight deck jersey uniforms. That's always really touching as well. Chaplains are on the ship primarily for this very reason, grief counseling and other types of counseling. Typically, they'll cancel flying for the day if they can to figure out what happened and just to let everybody process it. Squadrons, even the ones not involved, will all have meetings and they'll talk about it. And it's just a way to heal and learn. Crying publicly, I guess, is a technique item only. Some do, many don't. And then generally speaking, next time you pull into port, you have a rip-roaring wake because that's just what we do to uh, celebrate. And yeah, it's never been easy. I think I mentioned somewhere else on this show, I think finally my fourth deployment, we didn't kill somebody or someone didn't pass away. So it's pretty common and yeah, it's never any fun. But thanks for the question. All right, another question about ship stuff from Rob Miles. He says, if the ship is recovering aircraft into a setting sun, will the ship's course get altered or landing times delayed to allow better visibility of the landing environment during periods when the sun is low on the horizon? And is there a requirement to land with the visor up or down? Well, the second question is much easier, Rob. No, there is no requirement that I recall. It was pilot preference. I think visor down was recommended in case something happened and you had to eject. But to your first point, typically cycles are scheduled to try to avoid the low sun angles. Generally, you'll have a day launch and a night recovery. However, just for whatever reason, if it happens, then you do your best. You can always call Clara lineup as the pilot landing. And that just tells the landing signal officers, you just can't see the lineup real well. So they'll hawk that for you. They'll give you come left or right for lineup or you're lined up left, you're lined up right as needed. And if it's too bad, they'll just no count it if it's not a great grade otherwise. But no, generally speaking, the wind is going to win. So if they have to fly right into the setting sun, it sucks, but you just do what you can. And that's why there's LSOs on the back of the ship. All right, let's see. Let's take one more phone call. Hey, Joe. John Deeds calling from up here in a little small town in central Minnesota called Mora. I was just today watching a cruise video from the Gunslingers VFA 105, and it's gotten me thinking here, especially with how technology is moving. Do you think in the near future it is a possibility potentially for our fighters to get a software patch, whatever it is, for the flight systems that potentially could automate in-flight refueling? We know not everyone is the best on the boom or the basket, but I mean, potentially life-saving if you could automate that process. And just I'd pose the question to you. And listen to you for a long time, Jello. Keep up the good work. It's a very good podcast. Thank you. All right, thanks, John. This question is a great segue into today's topic, actually. So let's welcome our co-host. You remember him from episode 121, titled What's Up with the F-35? Billy Flynn, welcome back to the show. Hey, Jello, great to be back here with you. Great to be chatting again. 
Yeah, no doubt. What's new with you? Let's see. It's been, I think, since last fall we heard from you last. Well, you know what? Even though I'm not flying fighters anymore, I'm as busy as ever. Podcasts, uh, writing a lot, teaching. As it turns out, life exists after the cockpit. <laughs> Indeed. We actually had an episode all about that. Episode 20, I believe it was. Yeah, you've been kind enough to help out. In fact, you and I were kicking around the idea of today's topic for a long time, and I finally just talked you into basically tackling it without me. But this collision avoidance stuff, it's really important. I think it's important. And hopefully the tale that we tell and the stories that help animate what this technology is all about will help other people understand why it's so important. And I'll say this now, we'll say it often. We all know people that have killed themselves hitting the ground. And so as long as you stick in this game, you always have a risk of coming across an accident. So yeah, we think it's important because we buried our friends and now developed a technology that would have prevented those guys and gals from killing themselves. So yeah, I think it's super important. Yeah. I used to keep a number on the back of my flight helmet to basically commemorate the folks that I personally knew who died in this business. And yes, to your point, many of them were CFIT victims. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. So without further ado, let's get to it. And we'll circle back after to not only answer John's question, but discuss this topic further. Here we go. Cinco, thanks for being here today. You were on the Fighter Pilot Podcast back on episode 78, and I was on an episode 121, both of us talking about a program we have lots of time in, the F-35, but today we're going to focus on something different, something that we both also have in common, the passion about collision avoidance technologies. So let's start with what have you been doing since the last time you were on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, which was aired back in April 2020? Yeah. Hey, Billy, awesome seeing you, talking to you. It is an important topic, so I'm glad that we've set aside some time. So April 2020, I have been and continue to be the director of the Department of the Air Force and MIT Artificial Intelligence Accelerator. So I'm stationed here at MIT with the only dedicated AI unit, basically in the DAF. So Air Force Space Force is the Department of the Air Force, the DAF. We have airmen here working alongside MIT researchers, shaping their research, trying to also empower our airmen and our guardians to be able to employ artificial intelligence throughout our organizations, throughout capability that's out there. So it's been exciting, man. I've loved being able to jump into this aspect of our battle space, which I definitely think is the future battle space. Laz Gordon was on in episode 139 of the Fighter Pilot Podcast, and he introduced the subject of AI and just and discriminated it between Terminator and and Skynet and what you're actually <laughs> yeah. doing, which I thought was pretty instructional for everybody. So I've seen you on LinkedIn with a really cool one minute or two minute, tell the world what you're doing in this environment. Go in a little detail, if you will. Let's take a minute and talk about it. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, ultimately, we need to transform the way we think about data, the way we think about software, the way we think about the battle space. And AI is an important future of that. So artificial intelligence, and we talk about AI, we talk about really machine learning, or, or the way that I think about it is software code that's rewriting itself. We need everyone to understand they have a responsibility because they're going to be interfacing with this AI-powered capabilities because we're already interfacing with these AI-powered capabilities. If you have a smartphone, like every day you're working with AI. And so how do we smartly incorporate this mindset shift 
into the entire, you know, battle space, you know, from how we create a air tasking order, which is like paperwork on tasking people to how we're actually dropping weapons and how are we working with other systems throughout the kill chain, if you will, you know, in order to get us to that point, where we're able to smartly employ AI powered capability. We need to understand it. We need to understand the ethical implications and we also need to empower our airmen to be able to develop it and implement it themselves. That means we need like foundational frameworks that'll allow people to understand how we acquire it and how we test it and how we deal with the legalese of the capability. And so there's just all these things. And we're here trying to be kind of a hub for those discussions and creating the foundation for that empowerment. And are you getting attention from leadership within the Department of the Air Force? Absolutely. They've been very supportive. The one thing about AI, it's different and it's unknown. Our senior leaders, and I'd say like even maybe O5s and above, they don't know anything about artificial intelligence. So unlike the past where the older folks had the experience and the knowledge about how to employ air power, for instance, in this case, the senior leaders don't understand that. The people that understand it are the 20-year-olds. So how do we really empower them and learn from them, glean from them. I see it sometimes as like, we're the cavalry in 1930s trying to figure out how to employ the Army Air Corps, right? And the people that understand how to employ the Army Air Corps are the 20-year-olds, right? Like I have an A1C that can't drink yet that is you know, better at coding and understands this than some of the MIT professors, right? So how do we tap into that? And that's been a huge challenge. Our senior leaders get it. They understand that limitation. And now we're just trying to figure out how do we adjust to account for this really revolutionary capability. I should say AI powers all capabilities. So this uh, revolutionary technology. So it's a lot like you and I know from F-35 world that we, the older pilots, could fly the airplane, but we would never be masters of a fifth gen or soon to be sixth gen platform in the air. It's the youngins that would do that. Yeah, We can't tell them how to employ that kind of sophistication because it's just not from our generation. Is that sort of like the communication leap that you're talking about? Yeah, I think it is. But even more so, like, I think it is even a bigger leap because we fly the airplane and we know how dogfighting works. And we have the idea of air combat maneuvers and tactical intercepts. Conceptually, we understand what the F-35 is trying to do with quarterbacking the battle space. In this situation, it's a different platform. It's a plane versus someone on the ground. So there is even, I think, a larger divide understanding this digital battle space than the example you put forth. Great. You live a charmed life, as I've told you, and I think that's fascinating. We'll talk about your next phase in life near the end. And let's get into the topic, which is collision avoidance technologies and really auto ground collision avoidance systems. Why don't you start with why collision avoidance matters to you? Yeah, thank you to allow me to share this story. It's a very personal story. By the way, there's parallels as we talk about AI. There's parallels as we talk about autonomy, which are distinctly separate things. It's important to discuss that uh, later on. And I am very passionate about automatic air collision avoidance, automatic ground collision avoidance, and autonomy in general in our aircraft. It stems really from an accident that I was a part of. So I'll walk you through it. The day was February 20th, 2008. I was conducting a training mission over the Gulf of Mexico with my wingman. We were both in F-15Cs. 
and we were dogfighting high aspect BFM, which means our noses basically beak to beak, we pass each other. When we pass each other, the fight is on and we're trying to get to a position of advantage behind the other to employ guns ultimately in a, what we would consider a control zone. So it's a controlled way of getting behind another aircraft to be able to employ weapons. We merge initially and the fight's on. We turn in towards each other. We're conducting what you traditionally call a single circle, high aspect BFM engagement. And then I'm watching him the entire time. We're trying to get to that position of advantage. As our noses come around, we're making circle over the ground. If you were to look above the fight, that's why it's called single circle. We're basically creating a single circle towards each other and we merge again. And at this second merge, I assess that I have more energy than him and that I can go in the vertical and that he cannot. I start pulling in the vertical to go what we call over the top. So I'm pulling up in the vertical. I'm still able to see him as we're getting farther away from each other, but we're curving towards each other as well, even as I go to the vertical. And then I turn towards him again, I what we call an oblique towards him, because I assess maybe he had more energy than I thought, and I didn't want to take it purely vertical. So I pull back in, my nose falls down below the horizon, and it's a turning engagement where I'm turning towards him, he's turning towards me. At this point, the apex of this circle that we're ascribing, it's still a single circle towards each other. We're 5,300 feet away from each other. And I remember looking out and I was like, man, he's not moving in my canopy, which means as a fighter pilot, if no one's moving in the canopy, there's no relational movement as you're looking at something, that means you're on a collision course. Now, typically that's a familiar feeling because we are maneuvering towards each other. And there are moments where you're like for split seconds, you're on collision courses, but you know, people maneuver away. And then there's a line of sight, we'd call it, where the aircraft will move on your canopy. And then that's fine. You continue fighting. And this situation, we're at 5,300 feet and there's no movement on my canopy. And then like a split second later, I was like, man, there's still no movement on the canopy. This feels weird. Like this is an awkward feeling. I'm not used to this. And then another split second later, I'm like, holy crap, he's not moving. So I'm trying to maneuver my aircraft basically now away from this impending, what I'm seeing is a possible close pass. So we're 5,300 feet away from each other and we're seven seconds from impact. And that's when I first have the thought like, man, this feels awkward. And then at 3,000 feet, there's nothing either of us could have done to avoid the impending collision. I didn't realize it at the time. And so that's how fast things happen. Seven seconds, 5,300 feet. At 3,000 feet, it was done. Before, I always thought of midair collisions as this experience where someone's not paying attention, right? You lose focus, you lose sight of your flight lead, but that is not always the case. And it was not the case here. I saw him the entire time. So I maneuver my aircraft trying to get away. As I pull into the turn, it basically just so happens that we were basically pulling into each other. And so I, at the last second, I'm turning as much as I can and pulling as many G's as I can to basically keep sight though. So I don't belly up to him at the last, probably with just a few tenths of a second left, I belly up and I pull one last time and then mass, mass disorientation and collision. He impacts about 20 feet behind my cockpit. We have a combined closure of around 400, 500 miles an hour. I lose my vision right away, but I don't lose consciousness. We call that graying out. And that could be from the G-forces experienced from the collision or from the stress of that collision. Either way, two seconds later, I get my vision back. None of this is a fluid memory, by the way. It's like time compression, like totally weird, eerie, even thinking about it now. 
I remember being stuck up in my seat and I'm like, what just happened? I reached down to the stick and I'm trying to control the aircraft as I'm like being pushed up in the seat because my aircraft is tumbling through the sky. But I also don't know that at this time. I just remember trying to gain control and nothing like the aircraft's not talking to me at all with regard to the controls, but it is talking to me regarding all the engine overheat left, engine overheat right warnings that are going on, engine fire left. So I'm like trying to reach for the throttles to turn a throttle off because that's what you do with an engine fire. And then I distinctly remember looking up and we have three rear view mirrors in the F-15C and they were completely orange. The plane was completely engulfed in flames. I make the decision very quickly after that, like I got to get out. So I reach down, I pull the ejection handles and it's like mass chaos to like eerie silence. And there I am under parachute. I'll tell you, this is almost a story for another time, but while I'm under parachute, I have a negative transfer where when I get to the checklist item, my mind is not with it, by the way, totally wondering if it's real or not. When I get to the checklist item of seat kit, which when you're post-ejection, you just make sure your seat kit is with you. I reach down and I detach my seat kit, which is the seat kit item that you do when you're ground egressing from an F-15C, not when you've ejected. So I negative transfer and I just, without thinking, detach my survival equipment, life raft, radios, food, water, all that. I hit the water with a life preserver unit around my neck six foot waves, the water's in the sixties. I'm 70 miles south of Panama city and no one can find me. And then it just so happens a few hours later, a 25 foot fishing boat that was out in that weather just happened upon me in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. And I survived. It was miraculous. It was crazy being in that water. I thought I was going to die and I made it though. And my wingman did not, he died in the collision and he was awesome right? These are all the stories. You work with amazing people and he was amazing. He was an amazing wingman. We didn't see the collision unfolding. And I think it teaches many things when I talk about this with people, because I think it's important, like a life lesson to think about your priorities before you're in a situation where you may not have long to live, right? And so setting your priorities straight and living for the right reasons and, you know, like all of these valuable lessons, but there's also lessons too. And it was understanding the the limitations of human perception in three-dimensional space, three-dimensional motion. That's what we experienced. You know, the collision was both our faults for not perceiving where the collision place was going to be, where that spot was going to, to happen and not maneuvering out of the way from hitting each other. And that takes me to the next part of my story, which I will pause before we get into, because it is, in my mind, total serendipity how it moves from there. But that is my collision story. And I'm thankful to be alive. And I miss my amazing wingman, my friend. I think about him often in his family. And uh, it's just something I have to live with. And, you know, I share my story to try to make things better for aviation and for others. And hopefully I honor him and the way that I express myself and uh, how I live my journey. You know, I take three things from what your story right off the bat. One is the notion that fighter pilots have the more we live in this world, which is live for each day because there's no guarantee in the world that we operated for so long that you're going to grow old. It's just far too dangerous, far too risky. The second point is clearly you are blessed. Nobody gets to live through a midair and tell a story afterwards or seldom. And you're one of the very few that have lived through one. And unfortunately your wingman didn't. Uh, The third one, in true fighter pilot, dark humor, 
every fighter pilot out there is smirking when you say you detached your seat kit over yeah. the water because you just realize, you know, afterwards, as you talk about it, you think, wow, I just put myself in a real dark place, make things uh, bad and all in the moment, or as you said, the negative learning. I've known five people at side note that I've talked to that have ejected three of them detached their seat kit accidentally. Okay. And that takes us, thank you, honestly, for sharing it. I think it's compelling. And, and people that listen to stories and go see, by the way, Top Gun Maverick and see all the movies don't realize that there really is danger out there every day when fighter pods fly. It is truly as risky as we make it out to be. And then explain how that leads into what we're talking about. Like I said, serendipity. I find myself at test pilot school a few years later. So I started in 2011. When you go through Air Force Test Pilot School, they assign you a big graduate project that you work on for the entire year, and it's testing something, right? You don't even get to choose. You don't decide like what that something is going to be. It just so happens that they give you projects that are ready for test pilots to take through a phase of its testing. And I showed up at Test Pilot School, and one of the five projects that they had was the first ever testing of automatic air collision avoidance system on a fighter aircraft on an F-16. I remember going into the chief test pilot's office, Evil Bill. He's like famous in our test pilot world. He's awesome. Bill Gray. Yeah, Bill Gray. I go into his office and I like holding back tears because it was so emotional that I could actually be part of something called the automatic air collision avoidance system, a technology. He totally assigned me to that project. I tested it with this amazing team that we had at Test Pod School. And it's technology where the planes are talking to each other through a pod. Those pods know where the flight path is going to be, you know, a split second, a second, five seconds, whatever, out in front. And if there's going to be a collision at the last possible second, the system takes control away from the pilot, avoids the collision, and gives the control back to the pilot when the danger is basically passed. So I was the first group of people, first pilot to ever fly and test the automatic air collision avoidance system. And this is like three years after my collision. And I'm so thankful to be a test pilot because it taught me right away, like the impact that I could have and the way that my story didn't have to just end in tragedy, though it did end in tragedy for my wingman, but how it could be something grander, something bigger than that. And that then takes me to this whole other journey of getting involved in autonomy and autonomous life-saving technology. And so that's kind of where it started at Test Pod School. And that got me into the team at AFRL, the ACAT team who are amazing. I'm shout out to Amy Burns and Kevin Price. They're real heroes in this whole thing. It introduced me to their whole team of doing automatic ground collision avoidance on the F-16, which we can talk to. And that brought me into that fold, which then I turned out later to be the F-35 commander, and I was a part of automatic ground collision avoidance for F-35, which we'll talk about. So it just was so amazing to see how that story arc has kind of brought me from my collision to getting involved with automatic collision avoidance uh, technology. Well, it introduces you to the notion of the history of it all, your link to it, and the teams involved, right? But we're going to talk about this. There's no one single period of time or there's no one single group that made this technology work that's actually fielded on F-16s and F-35s. It's so years and years and teams from different organizations that, to me, 
in my world as my history as a test pilot, I've never seen a group so committed to getting this technology into an airplane because they understood the true potential of what it could bring. For people that don't know what is automatic ground collision avoidance, can you walk through that? What leads to CFIT? What are the contributors? And then let's talk just a little bit about each of those and talk about how to build an auto GCAS system. What do you need? I talked about automatic air collision avoidance a second ago, right? But what came first was something simpler than automatic air collision avoidance. It's automatic ground collision avoidance because the ground's not moving. If you know where the ground is, unlike a plane, you know, another plane is moving. So you got to worry about that. Automatic ground collision avoidance has developed over decades, actually. But ultimately, it is the plane recognizing that it is going to hit the ground and taking control away from the pilot to avoid that ground collision or what we call CFIT is controlled flight into terrain. CFIT is the number one killer of pilots because it covers a number of things that could put a pilot in a situation where they fly into the water or into the ground. As you mentioned, spatial disorientation could lead to CFIT. Your gyros get spun like in your head and you don't know where you are. You find yourself in the water on the ground and, and it's a real thing. It kills pilots all the time. It's killed fighter pilots, the Air Force even recently, right? Spatial disorientation. G loss of consciousness. So that is you lose consciousness because the G forces are too much. The blood goes out of your head. You pass out. You wake up, but you usually wake up 20 seconds later. And by that time, you're typically dead because you're going to be running into the ground, which is also considered CFIT. Flying too low, not being aware, like channelized attention. A good example is you're strafing the ground with your gun and you channelize on the target and you're pulling the trigger and you're trying to kill the target and you just forget to pull up it's too late and you find yourself hitting the ground and dying. And so CFIT, all these things, and even by the way, hypoxia could be considered that too. You pass out, the plane just goes towards the ground and at some point hits the ground. So that'd be control flight into train. So this system basically would save all those pilots from those scenarios and rescue them, at least to give them enough time to try to get their whereabouts and, and to fly the plane home safely. So that's the CFIT portion. I mean, the history is interesting because we've known for so long, like this is the number one killer of pilots. We've had in planes what we call manual collision or manual warning systems that would tell the pilot like, hey, you're about to hit the ground. What we've noticed is that may save some people and there's definitely been saves because of manual systems, but the preponderance of CFITs are simply not recoverable with that manual system. And we know it because... So many deaths have happened where we know we go back to the recording, especially since the 2000s. We know the manual system told the pilots to recover, that they were going to hit the ground and they still didn't do it. So there has to be something about autonomy. The warnings are screaming in their headsets. The screens have red X's or whatever the warnings are. And the men and women don't recognize it because their heads are somewhere else. Exactly. So, I mean, that... It was so informative because it made us realize that we had to do something that was more intrusive with the pilot. And that's where we led to automatic collision avoidance technology. Let's talk about the maybe four things that are the components of what you need to help an aircraft understand when it's flying that it might hit the ground or not. Yeah. You know, we've talked about this before and, and there are a few things that you need. One, you need GPS. You need to know where you are. You need to know where you are on the earth. You need to know terrain data, like what is beneath you on the earth. 
that's important as well. It's not simply a lat long, but it's like what is below that lat long. It could be a mountain or it could be your lake or, you know, you need to know the terrain basically. And you need to have fidelity of what that is. You need to be able to detect the ground. So you have to have some method of knowing kind of what is coming in front of you, some type of terrain detection, not just knowing the data that the train's there, but also like if there's being able to detect it basically. And then you need to know the attitude of the plane. So that is really important. And that kind of goes with the GPS part, like where are you and where's your orientation to that world is important. And then you need a model that we call like a flyaway model. So this model would need to know what to do in certain scenarios to rescue the plane from that collision. It would need to be linked to an autopilot or some type of flight controls that, that can fly the plane away without a pilot having to input it. And then you need to, with that flyaway model, understand like how many G-forces can you actually pull, right? Like you don't want to pull 10 Gs. Sure, if that's going to save the pilot, but you want to do that beforehand so you don't have to pull 10 Gs because you just like incapacitate the pilot for longer, right? So you need that as part of your flyaway model. Yep. I'll introduce some of the history just because I jumped into, I flew auto GCAS also. There's an airplane that people see and they could look in the history books. It was the Advanced Fighter Technology Integration, AFTI F-16. And, and early in the 1990s, they started into look into ground collision avoidance. And it, it was a follow-on. They were working on automatic weapons deliveries, and they realized that you could fly into the ground. And they worked into this CFIT problem. But there were a couple issues that really never allowed them to get into production. One is, and you and I remember this, you remember in the Gray Eagle, I remember in the Hornet, we had INSs, inertial navigation systems, and mm -hmm. they would wander as much as a mile an hour when you flew. You never knew exactly where you were when we operated with those, those old systems. And then you talked about the terrain data, the terrain elevation data, kind of like Google Earth for civilians. Way back when, in the 90s, it wasn't very sophisticated. So the combination of an aircraft that didn't know precisely where it was and then terrain data that wasn't exact meant that you really didn't know after an hour or two of flying if you were exactly over the mountain or the valley, which would potentially render this system not as useful as we would want it to be. And back in the 2000 timeframes, the AFTI program and the ACAP program or the, the follow-on programs went to the Air Force to try to get their support. And they came in with a rough order of magnitude costing of a half a billion dollars to implement this with some significant hardware upgrades and it got killed. And then I actually flew a GCAS system. We put it into the F-16E and F models, which were built exclusively for the United Arab Emirates. And we put in an early version of GCAS. I always called it the 80% solution and not a perfect fly-up model, not a perfect train data, but it was clearly better than anything else out there. And got it fielded. And that, in a parallel path, led to me joining the Automatic Collision Avoidance Technologies Program. You alluded to AFRL. It was a combined team of Lockheed Skunk Works, the Air Force Research Lab, NASA Dryden at the time, the NASA Dryden Flight Research Facility, now called NASA Armstrong and the U.S. Air Force, and obviously Edwards. And we flew a two-seat F-16D in the period 2009 through 2010, where that navigation solution, that INS, became an embedded GPS INS system. You and I know it from more sophisticated jets and an Aggie, which all of a sudden gave us a GPS that had extraordinary precision. 
And then we came across amazing terrain data. We found out our terrain data that we in the military thought was accurate really wasn't, but data produced from the Shuttle Radar Topography Mission, STS-99, mapped 80% of the Earth's surface. And when that data was eventually processed, all of a sudden we had magical, amazing data, not Google Earth, but extraordinarily precise data. And the teams had worked on the algorithm for fly-up models and the detection scan patterns. And in the period, by the time we finished in 2010, 2011, we had the 98% solution of auto GCAS. We fortunately got to push that to the F-16 program as essentially a plug and play program. It was flight tested at Edwards and by 2014 fielded into the fleet. And all of that started to save lives. And you and I know the I'll just keep going on this tangent because we get to our first save that anyone had ever seen. And I don't remember, was it when we'd already started F-35 testing when the uh, Mm -hmm. Tucson student blacked himself out? We hadn't done anything with the F-35 yet. That was in 2014 was the first save. Just remind everybody what the save was and why it was so important. Yeah, a Viper pilot and Vipers can pull a lot of Gs and sustain a lot of Gs. So they have a lot of G-locks. And about one a year, man, sadly, it's horrible. A pilot, typically student pilots, would black out while pulling Gs. And this pilot did. You can go YouTube. I mean, it's crazy video. When you watch, right, it just like makes your skin crawl because you see what's happening. Pilot passes out after 8.3 Gs, dives towards the ground. I think it was about 600 knots at 50 degrees nose low. And then this beautiful thing called auto GCAS comes in, writes the aircraft, the pilot then wakes up alive, you know, and recovered basically. I recall the video had been out there. We certainly had seen it. Those of us who had been in the ACAT team, it had been passed around and people knew about the technology. It had been written up in Aviation Week and we had Guy North from Aviation Week to come fly in the airplane to see it, but it wasn't catching on. We weren't getting people's interest. When that video was pushed out there, out in the public, I credit Guy North, a journalist from Aviation Week, for pushing the story. That's the video that everyone saw that made everybody realize the potential of what this technology was. And it's not just to save airplanes, right? It's to save the lives of the fighter pilots. I think that was the turning point of this amazing technology that everybody had worked on for so long, but had just not got the attention of the real world. And that video became, even now, it's so compelling to, yeah. to hear his flight lead screaming at him yeah. and to hear him as he, you know, he's asleep, jets heading to the ground. And then, you know, after it recovers, he wakes up and carries on. You know, Billy, I think it's important too, to mention, there were so many people that started testing this in the nineties or even like even the late eighties in 2000, it could have been put into the Viper and it was not. It wasn't as simple as like, oh, we'll just put into the software. There were some other challenges with it, but ultimately the decision was made to not do it. And 14 years passed and 17 pilots died in the F-16 that would have been saved. We should not shy away from that history, that acknowledgement that that was a mistake. Why didn't we do it is what we should be evaluating. So we don't make the same mistake going forward. And ultimately it got political of why it got finally input into the Viper And then, like you said, once pilots realized what the system was doing, everyone was on board. But to get it to that point was very difficult, cost a lot of lives. And why was that? I think that's 
really what we need to evaluate. Like, why did it take so long? And that's when I go back to the discussion. The parallel with AI is trust, trusting in the technology. And I'm not saying we blindly trust AI or we should blindly trust autonomy, but I'm saying like we need to be able to develop that trust to prove that trust. And that's what kept, I think, the F-16 from getting auto GCAS earlier was operators didn't trust that it wouldn't interfere and that it, uh, that it was actually going to help them. Pilots really don't like the idea of a system taking control over them. Even if you explain to him that it's, it's necessarily, it's basically flawless. And when it takes over, you are going to die and it's going to help you. They still are so reluctant. There's so much drilled in people's heads that they always want control of things. Before every mission in ACAT, so I flew this two-seat F-16D out of Edwards Air Force Base at the NASA facility, and before we would start every sequence, we would go and fly a set pattern towards the ground to activate the warnings to make sure it worked. We'd do that on the dry lake bed, and then we'd head off into the area 2515 to go work on that particular task of the day. I never, in every single warm-up that I did, could never fly close enough to the ground on my own, below the threshold that was actually there. It was so finessed. It was so tight that when it took over, you are going to die. And, and I'll jump ahead to say that at the end of ACAT, one of the last missions against a piece of rock that we all knew very, very well, and you remember GCAS Mountain. Yep. There's a video of me and alone, fortunately, no one in my backseat. I flew at the rock intentionally because I knew we had to create a video that was so compelling that no one could deny that this technology worked. And I flew it I knew I wasn't going to hit the rock, but I flew with the rock on purpose. And uh, Rattled shows 19 feet as it bounced me over the top of the rock to prove that the system really was as good as we think. I do want to come back to something else you said, uh, but the lessons learned. I think there's a, lots of fighter pilots and test pilots. They love flying new systems, but they're not always really good at telling the story of why the systems are important. And it's the compelling stories, the testimonials that help sell a technology or get its acceptance. It's having someone like you stand up in front of staffers in DC or congressmen and tell your story. And then they start to listen because you're the communicator that explains to them how and why things work, creating that trust that you're talking about, I think. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com careers. Visit today. I've been honored to be able to share that story, though it's tough, man, right? There's shame and regret and, you know, it's a failure on my part, my story, but we have to get beyond that in order to grow. And so I've been honored to be able to do that. Being a part of the team was really um, 
humbling meeting the amazing people that are making this happen. I kind of want to shout out some of their names. Like, as you mentioned earlier, this is not about us. Like, there's just such an amazing team, decades long of people working on this. I mentioned some AFRL people, but I'll tell you, like, Tex Wilkins, he's working in the Office of Secretary of Defense for Personnel Manning. Like, he's an old fighter pilot, made this happen. Mark Skoog, my goodness, one of like the OG doing this in NASA in like the 80s. Ed Griffin out at Lockheed Martin, amazing. Then you have like the test pilots that have put so much into this, like Raven McClare. You have like Boucher Ungerman, Bam Bam Wees, Hummer Gutierrez worked at the Joint Program Office and made this happen. And you have the JPO and you have congressional people and you have engineers of the grass. Like it's just the list goes on and on. And I wanted to mention some of their names because we were saving people in the F-16 when in the F-35, we started asking the questions of when is auto GCAS going to go in the F-35? And do you mind if I tell that part of the story? No, I really want you to, because your side of the F-35 story is really interesting when you were at the JPO and how that all came to happen. Yeah. So I was at the JPO and I asked the question, I worked at the JPO before I flew the F-35 as I was the developmental test programmatic lead for the program. And I asked like, Hey, when's auto GCAS going in the F-35? The year was like 2000, I want to say 15. When I asked the question, they're like, well, it's going to happen in like 2027. I was like, wait, what? And I talked to the engineers and it was like legitimate. Like they didn't have enough bandwidth and it just wasn't, you know, it's gonna have to wait a little bit longer. I get out to Edwards and I'm now the commander of F-35, fast forward a few years. And I just was like, you know, I don't want to be satisfied with that answer. I want to dig a little bit deeper and figure out if anything's changed. I talked to Ross LeClaire, Raven LeClaire, he's the Lieutenant Colonel in the Air Force, his call signs Ross. And I was like, dude, let's go talk to Lockheed Martin and the JPO and really figure out like what is stopping us from getting auto GCAS earlier. And so we were like, let's get a summit together. Let's like not ask permission and just do it. Let's talk to Lockheed Martin. And they're all on board. Dude, Lockheed Martin is amazing. The people there, so sacrificial in making this technology happen, by the way. So thank you. And so we talked to Lockheed. We got a few people at the Joint Program Office of F-35 to come out for this summit engineers and were like, what really is the limitation? And they came back and they're like, we're going to do a study to figure out if we could actually put it in TR2, which is Tech Refresh 2, instead of TR3, which is back in you know 2027 or something. So TR2 was much earlier. It was like happening then. They basically started really pushing to see if this could happen. And they found out like within a few months, they're like, oh my goodness, we have the space to do this. And we're like, slam dunk, let's do it. I will tell you one thing happened was MATLAB changed. And the compiler behind the MATLAB, which is like write software code, you know, like simple stuff like that, it changed to a new version, which made so much more space available because it was running code more efficiently. So technology at its finest, right? And we were like, slam dunk, we're going to get auto GCAS in. And Billy, dude, you know the history, like we've talked about this and you were a part of it to actually get it in the program along the pathway in an F-35 program that's like already set, it was nearly impossible. We're like saving F-16 pilots left and right. And we're just continually running up against bureaucracy of like, oh, well, we can't do it here. You have to wait on this, but then you have this to worry about. And I'm sorry, it's going to have to wait. I'm sorry, it's not worth it. And you get like just a lot of pushback and it was blowing my mind. Like we knew it worked. We knew it worked in the F-16 and we could put in the F-35 and it was not simple. Fortunately, we had a lot of support from 
individuals. We did have the JPO support from the actual PEO, Admiral Winter, and then uh, Lieutenant General Fick. So we were able to basically make it happen with an amazing team. From basically us having that summit, a year later, we got approval to put it in a system. And a year later, it was done flight testing, which is remarkable, dude. Two years for this to go from like a concept to fully in the bird, all three variants, by the way, was just a testament to the amazing folks that came around and made that happen. We actually won the Collier Trophy. We as F-35, as well as the successes at F-16, I remember like presenting to the board and talking to them about the uh, remarkable impact that this was going to have on aviation moving forward for many reasons, not just safety, but actually a stair step to other things. And we won the trophy for the greatest achievement in aerospace or aeronautics in America for that year. For 2018. Yeah, 2018. You know, you said a couple of things. Let's go back to uh, Ed Griffin, the Lockheed Martin Skunk Works, who had run the team at ACAT, and they'd been part of this for years and years, parallel or with their colleagues from AFRL and Mark Skoog at uh, NASA Armstrong at that point, and other pilots like Kevin Prosser, who was a peer of mine who flew in the team with me. They just hung on year after year, chipping yeah. away. I remember finish F-16, joining the F-35 program and hearing that Auto GCAS, as you said, was years away in Tech Refresh 3. And I kept thinking every day we're flying around with $100 million plus F-35s. Yeah. And we are just waiting for a spatial disorientation event to happen. We got a new helmet and this cosmic airplane and we're out using it like an airplane's never been used before. And you just knew something was going to happen yeah. before everyone would have woken up and said, oh, Lord, we need to get on this. And I, you said it. I think it's a revolutionary effort to change the massive program that F-35 is to get them to insert this technology. I'll give kudos to the leadership at Lockheed Martin and in the F-35 program at the time. They understood the potential of this technology and supported the little science project that the Lockheed Martin Skunkworks team did to go find room, get past the notion of not enough throughput to get auto GCAS in the airplane. And then you guys at Edwards just were relentless. You know, it's a dog with a bone and you yeah. are not letting this oh, go. Man. It was not getting pushed because we all knew that we we're talking yeah. about lives. Yeah. Like we're talking about a hundred million dollar yeah. airplane out there and the lives of some unsuspecting pilot. I almost got fired over it. I need to be careful. <laughs> we were just so passionate about it. It made sense. It was the right thing to do. And, and it happened, right? I'm proud of people coming around and recognizing it. We did miss by a time. There's a Japanese Defense Force pilot that had a spatial D out over the water. And we've never yeah. truly found all the wreckage. And it was not in the airplane in time to save him. And, and I think that's just part of reminding us that all every test pilot out there, every engineer out there, you need to commit and get these technologies that are going to save lives into airplanes yeah. as soon as possible because the threat is always there. And you were recognized at the 2018 Collier Trophy, which is the highest award in aviation. It was an honor to be up there with the amazing team. I will say, fast forward a few months from that Collier Trophy, we had an activation in an F-35 that we think saved the pilot. When we say there's been so many saves, there's a team that goes to a location, reviews all of the data, and like confirms at many different levels that it is actually a save. So we're not like overselling it or mischaracterizing it. And there was an activation in late 2019 
that the pilot thinks saved their life. The team thinks that it probably did. They didn't officially call it a save because there was a possibility that they would have been able to recover in time. So is it an official save? No, but that's there for our pilots now, right? That is protecting them in situations that typically would kill them. And it is, you know, historically was the number one killer of pilots. But when you have an auto GCAS enabled platform like the F-16, for instance, or the F-35, we're not losing pilots to these CFIT scenarios. It's awesome, right? That's what we need to be doing. In the news lately was the announcement or the recognition, as you say, a confirmed the 12th F-16 save. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Do the math. It's 12 pilots and 11 Vipers. So yeah. do the math. One of those is a two-seater where both were incapacitated. Yeah. Double G-lock. A double G-lock, right? Yeah. And then there's an announcement of a Raptor save in Alaska in June 2020. Yep. What's the cost of a pilot's life? And then obviously, what's the cost of a Raptor? A Raptor is different, right? The system is different than what we've talked about in F-16 and F-35. They have a, a line in the sky that they type in, which is necessarily a floor above the earth. And when it, if it crossed that floor, recognized that it would fly up, which it might work in Langley, Virginia, where they're out over the water a lot, or the Atlantic Ocean, or in Hawaii, out of the Pacific, the case of the F-22 save, there are mountains all over the place. The pilot became disoriented and the pull-up happened actually below the mountain tops. Thank God they have a system. may not be exactly like the F-16 yeah. and F-35 have, but it's most importantly in there. Now, you spent some time with the different services and the cultures of convincing different services whether they need it or not, because it's not the same between the Air Force, Marine Corps, and, and Navy, is it? No, it's not. I think some of it, I don't blame our Navy brethren, right? Like they suffer from CFIT, but they think of auto GCAS or the people that I spoke to, like the handful of people, they thought of it as more of like, oh yeah, that's an F-16 thing, or that's kind of what the Air Force does. And, and so it was talking to them too about like how the system works, trying to build trust in that. I mean, Mind you, the tenets of auto collision avoidance is do no harm. So you don't want to cause a collision. And then you want to do not interfere. So you don't want to interfere with a task that a pilot would do. Typically, like if you want to fly around at 100 feet, like you don't want the system going off because maybe you need to fly around at 100 feet. And then you need it to work and actually avoid collisions. Those priority order in that order is um, trying to talk to other people and, and convince them like this is trustworthy. It is working. It's a little bit different mindset. And it's all trade-offs, right? If you're going to implement auto GCAS, you may lose the capability of a, maybe a weapon that you had. And so it's trying to understand too what the implications are of like trading off certain capabilities in a platform. I will say software platforms like the F-35 make that a little bit easier because it's easier to add in you know, code than to add in some type of like targeting pod, for instance. It was tough. It is still tough. I mean, mind you, F-16 has auto GCAS. I tested auto ACAS. Auto ACAS, and it's combined, we call it ICAS, integrated collision avoidance, because you need the GCAS to work with the ACAS. So you don't have like a GCAS activation put you into another aircraft and have a mid-air collision, right? So ICAS has been tested fully in the F-16. They're trying to adopt in the F-35, but even then it's worked for five years, like legitimately good working technology that we have not implemented into our fighter aircraft. And so it's still like an uphill battle sometimes to convince folks that this is good, it's trustworthy, and it needs to go in those platforms. But they do understand one thing that I'll say, and this is 
I mean, a little bit of a discussion of like kind of where this is going in the future. Automatic ground collision avoidance gave birth to automatic air collision avoidance. Automatic air collision avoidance gives you so much other capability that's not just safety capability, but actual combat capability. Like if you want to have a swarming UAV and have an aircraft, you need to know how to avoid collision with that aircraft, right? If you can maneuver your aircraft autonomously to avoid a collision, well, maybe you can maneuver your aircraft autonomously in a dogfight. Things like that are made possible because of auto ACAS. And when you're able to convey and communicate that it's not just life-saving technology, it's these other things as well. It's a stair step to additional capability. Then people, even more people are like, oh, okay, I'm really getting this and we need to develop it, right? We need that ground floor auto GCAS to get us auto ACAS to get us these other things. Where it's a Navy-oriented podcast that Jello has started, it is interesting as you talk about talking to other aviators and other engineers, how you build a story and then it builds on itself. One of the reasons that automatic collision avoidance, ground collision avoidance is in the Hornet is in part linked to a Marine test pilot who I flew with at PAX, who did manual GCAS, wrote a white paper, sent that paper, ended up at the Marine Corps headquarters with his friends. And they started the ground floor or ground swell of support for F-35, auto GCAS, and basically essentially got pushed certainly lots of support from the Marine Corps, even if in the Navy itself, they weren't, as you say, entirely aware of what this could do. And now there's going to be in legacy Marine Corps Hornets and the other nations that fly legacy Hornets, which is probably just Canada left, Ice Nicker because of my homeland. (laughs) And Super Hornet is now getting, you know, their version of collision avoidance in all started because you others talk to test pilots and engineers who then told the story time and again, and it creates this groundswell of a support. That was Latch Lippert, right? Latch. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing test pilot. Great guy. I'm really proud of our test pilot community, man. This is for me, like we all got it. We understood it because we're used to working with technology, but across the board, regardless of service, regardless of industry or government, we really, I think, made this happen. I'm really proud of being a part of like such a great community. Let's talk about where it goes outside of the fighter community. We all love adopting new technologies. We all flew with HUDs, you know, 40 years ago and have flown with helmets now for first Jehemix, now F-35 helmets. We're early adopters of cool tech. The civilian world isn't necessarily, right? Not the corporate world, the commercial aviation or corporate jets that are out there, private airplanes. Where does it go next? Yeah, well, we've tested auto GCAS on big platforms. I think the C-17 has done some testing. We lose C-17s at CFID. I think there was that Alaska air show practice that happened. Yep. We've done testing on other heavy platforms. Test Pilot School has actually done that work a few years ago. They had another project about trying to adopt it there. We need to get it on the T-7. That's a new trainer aircraft for the Air Force. It's not in its its first tranche of capability, but we need it there. This type of capability should be on airliners, of course. I kind of want to avoid talking about it, but I think it's important to talk about it. We lost those Boeing airliners and all those people. They were using a type of system that was like a ground collision avoidance system. I think that there's a lot of argument like, well, how is this any different? And I don't know a lot of that background, but I'll tell you that I think there was training that was lacking. I think that there was some testing and other things that were lacking that reports have come out and said, and and this is different what we're talking about. But regardless, we need to test this technology safely 
effectively, thoroughly, and then we need to train people on how to use the technology. But I definitely think that this is going into aircraft from general aviation all the way through our heavy fighter aircraft community. Uh, it's being adopted because it works. There's a great science project that happened at NASA, then Dryden, NASA Armstrong, after we were done with ACAT, so 2011 timeframe. Uh, you mentioned the name Mark Skoog, a lead engineer that we had there. They put a smartphone, and in a smartphone that has, we all have GPS, and we all have Google Earth, they linked up a scan pattern and a flight model, both of which you talked. So looking ahead of this airplane and linking it to the flight controls, they put it on a slow speed unmanned aerial vehicle and flew it into the hills around the Edwards Air Force Base, the Sierra Nevada mountains that you and I both know well, with a smartphone as the auto GCAS system to prove that this technology wasn't as wildly as complex as people would have imagined that you and I could have it in our iPhones or our uh, whatever our smartphone is already now. And that was uh, 10 some odd years ago. So the technology is, you know, fascinating, but not as complicated as yeah. people would be. What did we miss in this conversation? You and I have a lot of time invested in it and a lot of passion into what matters to listeners. What have we not told them already? I think the highlight for me is that there's a point in which we need to understand and learn to trust how our aviation systems are becoming more autonomous and more like software enabled powered, which includes like some AI powered capability. That's a new world that we need to understand the technology, understand the limitations of the technology, understand the role of an operator using that technology, especially as we go into the battle space. And we need to think about ethical concerns for autonomy because like I said, autonomous air collision avoidance and ground can move into other autonomous things. Well, when does that autonomy end? And where are the limitations of lethal autonomous weapon systems? And I think that is an important conversation to us to have, but it needs to be founded on an understanding of the technology and kind of where we've been and to smartly move forward and to learn to trust effectively because urban air mobility, flying cars, Amazon's like package delivery system, like our skies are becoming saturated. We need to figure out what that's going to look like with technology like this hand in hand, right? And we need to be able to save people from collisions and uh, enhance their performance. And I feel like the starting point is this conversation. It's funny you started and we're back how we started, which is great that you've circled us back around to the beginning of our conversation today. And I want to come back to what you talked about, you know, the young software coders that are necessarily smarter in this, understand this world better than the older folks. And by the way, the Air Force and Navy Marine Corps are run by older folks. There has to be someone that can communicate these notions to them, the senior leadership, so they buy into it because they're just not from a generation that can easily comprehend yeah. it. You're not living at MIT much longer. Why don't we finish off by talking about what's next in this charmed career that you've had? It has definitely been a blessed career. I feel so fortunate from flying F-15Cs to like standing up MC-12s in Afghanistan to testing F-15Cs and E's to getting an F-35 to doing this AI thing. I am off to Eglin Air Force Base to be the operations group commander of the 96th Test Wing, where we will be, I will be responsible for that group and we will be testing you know, F-15, F-16, A-10, special ops, helicopters, C-130s, 
weapons are all kind of under my uh, purview along with uh, a few others. And I get the so awesome opportunity to go back to fly the Eagle and to test the F-15EX, which I'm stoked about. It's been nearly three years out of the cockpit, but uh, actually like two weeks ago, I got requalified and did my check ride in the F-15E Strike Eagle, which was great down at Seymour Johnson. And uh, now that I have that qualification, I'm ready to go again and get transitioned over to the EX and the C and UCE and EX testing. So I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be exciting. And I'm hoping to take my new perspective on AI autonomy, part of the conversation we just had, and try to apply that to where we're going as an Air Force, how we're testing our systems and how we're implementing a new mindset. So, dude, I'm stoked. Fascinating pedigree, right? Gray Eagles, which, by the way, as a Hornet Viper guy, we always hated the Eagle guys. Uh, I speak for Jello and everybody else from the world, but because we're jealous, maybe. Gray Eagle to now, Strike Eagle now to this amazing new uh, F-15EX. I think you're just probably going to have a blast doing that that whole adventure and back with younger aviators who just are super keen with limitless energy that want to go out there and build better and cooler and be part of bigger things. Yeah. I'm loving it. Thank you so much for allowing me to share my story and talk about this like super important topic. Well, thank you for coming on. We both browbeat Jello to allow us to do this because we both thought this technology was so important to get the story out. And it's like your AI story that people need to go tell the story, need to educate the communities that are out there and get their buy-in. And it's sort of one conversation at a time, right? There's no instant light switch that goes on and all of the aviation community understands it takes time. And so thank you for taking your time to come chat today. Love uh, hearing the stories. Uh, Appreciate all your candor. And um, last time we saw each other in person, by the way, was Prague at the Society of Experimental Test Pilots Symposium, just after you guys had been at the Collier Award. And I'm pretty sure the last time was late night in some smoky bar someplace in a hotel in Prague. So I look forward to seeing you in person uh, soon enough. Solving the world's problems, Billy, always. Absolutely. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time. Thanks. All right, Billy, great job hosting your first interview. But I mean, come on, two exceptions, right? This show is not just Navy oriented. We talked about that way back on episode zero. And I never hated the Eagle. That's not cool. (laughs) Well, there's clearly a Navy bent on this show. And it is about (laughs) fighters. We all love that. Yeah, We all banter with the Eagle guys, don't we? Oh, we do. They are the air-to-air experts out there. That's all they did. No pound for air-to-ground, as they often said. I don't know if you've flown the Eagle, but I've flown the Gray Eagle years ago. It is a great flying fighter. It's the size of a tennis court, but it had that big, huge radar. You could see everything out there, even back in the day. You know, one of the curious things is in the competition for Canada's, what ultimately became a fighter of the Hornet 40-something years ago, Mm -hmm. they tested out the early model Eagle, and it was a great air-to-ground jet back in the day. But those diehard fighter pilots ripped every air-to-ground part of it back (laughs) out of the A model just so they could be air-to-air guys only. So, yeah, we don't hate the Eagle guys, but there's a lot of banter back and forth. Well, and you can't argue with results. What is it, 104 to zero? So clearly they are dominant, and there's no doubt about that. Well, let's pick apart a few things. First off, I thought it was really fascinating. Two things on Cinco's plight, if you will. One is that he took over the MIT AI lab from Laz, who was on the show recently with Ken Katz talking about AI and military aviation. 
And then I just was a little bit tripped out by the similarities between his and the other collision from 2008 that resulted in a fatality. And we outlined that one in our separate podcast called The Merge. But that was only a few months after Cinco's ordeal. We both have flown lots of air to air and you and I know the difference in feet that we've missed and close calls. Yeah. And there is a point, as Cinco talks about, he didn't know it at the time, but there was no way to miss the collision. And he's just so lucky. It's inches, it's feet, it's seconds to a collision to life or death. At some point, you can't prevent it. And he is so lucky to have walked away from that yeah. because not many guys do. Right. But then to circle back and be involved in the collision avoidance technology as it was ready for testing was just serendipity. I love the part where he said he was fighting back tears to tell the guy that he so wanted to be part of that test. That was just so cool. And so, you know, when he stands up in an audience and says, look, I survived and someone else didn't, and here's why this technology matters, people listen, right? Oh, yeah. He understands that effect he has when he stands up in the podium and how important, how compelling the story is. You guys threw out a lot of terms. Could you just expand on a couple for me? One is JPO, which I think is what? JPO, the Joint Program Office? Joint Program Office, the three U.S. services that essentially uh, run F-35. It's a single office, all different uniforms there that run the program as a united program from the very beginning days through till now. One of the positives of the JPO is that everyone's there to build a better F-35. There isn't a separate Air Force office that's doing separate on their own and off on a division, you know, someplace, a different tangent than the Navy or the Marine Corps want. So there's some advantages of it. It is a monster organization based in Crystal City in Washington, D.C. And we talked about the PEO, the Program Executive Officer, a rotating position between the three services it's rotated also between two and three star positions. That's the single point of contact that talks on behalf of the entire program, not just here in the United States, but around the world as we sell the jet and manage the program moving forward. Yeah. And that PEO was the other one I wanted to ask you about. So that's good. Let me ask you this. I mean, not that you speak for Cinco, but at one point he said something like a future pilot might be able to quote, maneuver your aircraft autonomously in a dogfight. What do you think he meant by that? So you taught air to air for so long, right? you know that nuggets and knuckleheads hit the merge and make a wrong move that allows you to gain advantage because they didn't think that out. They didn't maneuver a jet in the best manner possible. One of the thoughts that comes from the way Cinco positioned this was, hey, the jet will maneuver itself. The AI will maneuver the jet better than a knucklehead or a nugget would and won't make those mistakes. And think back about, I'm sure you've read about it, the air combat evolution It was really AI versus a human in a sim test, a couple iterations where ultimately the AI flown sim did better than the human in a simulator doing dogfighting. At some point, the machine is not to make the mistakes that an inexperienced fighter pilot, not a Top Gun instructor, but an inexperienced fighter pilot would make. And theoretically... At some point, the machine has learned to maneuver the jet better than the human who isn't as experienced or as good as someone like you or your buds at Top Gun. But part of the reason I got better was that I was in those flights and I saw firsthand, if I do this, he just did that. And whoops, now I'm getting beat. And so I think there's a not a circular argument here, but there's a discussion of, okay, well, number one, I need that experience to really learn it. But number two, if I'm not going to be optimal 
why am I even needed in the cockpit in the first place? And maybe that's a conversation we don't want to have today, but it certainly begs the question. Well, I think we're a long way from you and I believing that we're going to let the robot, let the AI fly <laughs> a jet in BFM for us. That's just right. not going to happen, I don't think, in my lifetime or yours. Yeah, let's hope because I agree. I still think there are certain things humans can do better. But all right, let's say I'm in a G-lock situation and I awaken at the last moment and the auto G-cast is doing its thing and I either instinctively or otherwise just start reefing on the controls. Are my control inputs going to be ignored? I mean, we sort of maybe deliberately or otherwise ignored any actual tactical discussion today on how these things work. But ultimately, when it comes to fly-by-wire, as we learned last week with Divot, the jet is not directly, I'm not connected to the flight controls anyway. I'm just putting in my vote. So if the airplane's already doing its thing, it's going to take my vote and say, well, fooey on you. You had your chance and now I'm doing it. Is that essentially what's going to be happening here? No, you can always paddle and override the system. So you and a hornet, remember, paddle in the front of the stick. Actually, you as a viper guy, remember taking the bottom two fingers and being able to paddle off that little lever that's in the front of the side stick. And you can add cumulatively to what the aircraft is trying to fly. It's really only flying a 5G pull-up. It uses, I don't want to get into geekdom, but it uses really what the autopilot is capable of. You can override that and pull more. Uh, okay. So a couple things. When we talk about these fly-ups, they don't last very long. Even as test guys where we threw ourselves at the ground in the hardest of scenarios, the actual pull-up to you miss the ground is measured in a short duration of seconds. And then as it projected and looked ahead, it knows you're not going to hit the ground anymore and it just lets it go. So this isn't a 30-second iteration. It's not a one-minute iteration. It's seven seconds, then it gives you back the jet. And so the human can always contribute and override the fly-up. That's good to know. And I think that's probably what the two of you were intimating with trying to convince pilots is we all think we're the best, right? So we don't want any, it's just like race car drivers, I always say on the show, they don't want oversteer protection and analog brakes and all these other tools. They want their own skill to be the difference between if they win or another racer wins. So uh, I think we all think we're better, but I do believe, hey, look, I'm a believer, Billy, in this technology. If I'm passed out, sure, I want to be saved. And like you said, there's that compelling video where the other guy is, and I'm glad you said it the way you did. He's virtually begging him to wake up, screaming, and and that gets your attention. I said it a couple of times, and I talked about my example of the falling at the rocks on purpose. Mm. The threshold for when this system kicks in is inside or beyond where you and I would have taken control. What I'm trying to say is you and I won't fly close enough to the ground in a 15-degree dive or a 20-degree dive. We will pull up before the system actually activates because you and I just can't stand it anymore. Its threshold is so tight. It's so impressive. It's so precise. And I flew that low-level route that goes from Edwards around China Lake and back. We did it all the time in, in my group, the four of us of that research team. We basically had no rules. You could have told us 100 feet, but we knew we were allowed to fly as low as we wanted. And that system was better than any of us could ever have been. Now, Billy, I'm no test pilot, but you keep saying throw yourself at the rocks. I mean, were you literally testing this by flying to the actual rocks, or did you spoof the system to think that it was all 500 feet higher than it really was, almost like a fake extra high level so that you have some margin? I mean, were you really down pulling the uh, tumbleweeds out of your intakes afterwards? I mean, obviously you didn't because it worked, but... Throughout all the development, we set an artificial floor. So we used that train elevation that we talked about, mm-hmm. and then we told it we're going to play at 3,000 feet higher than that okay. or 1,000 feet higher than that. But at the end of our research program, we took away all the margins. 
because we knew we had to prove to people that it was that good. And so we would fly low levels around Edwards and China Lake as low as you dare wanted to go. <laughs> and at one point at the very end, I flew at a rock with no margins and said, look, we actually knew the system was going to work and we practiced it. But yeah, I flew with no margins and it bounced me off the rock at 19 feet Yeah, because we needed the video. We knew we had to show some graduation level video and performance of how good the system really was. But during all the testing, we had lots of pad on the system to make sure it worked without ever throwing ourselves at the ground. But you literally bet your life on it because had it not worked, by the time your brain would have recognized it didn't work in time and grab the stick and actuate the controls and those 19 feet would have been used up, I feel like. Absolutely. If the system didn't work, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation right now. Well, I'm glad we are, Billy. All right. So we're going to wrap around here to uh, John's question. But before we do, Cinco said something like, our skies are becoming saturated. And when he did, I thought of that Star Wars prequel where Anakin, Skywalker, and Obi-Wan are they're spending time on that planet. I think it's Coruscant. And, you know, there's all those vehicles and streams flowing along, perfectly synchronized. Nobody's bumping into each other. Now, I realize that's science fiction, Billy, but could solutions like what you guys discussed today enable such a thing in the future? Well, I think the solutions now would make people feel comfortable. Just think back to Afghanistan where guys are in a stack with, there are UAVs up there and you have different guys uh, split with altitude sanctuaries, but you don't know. And you're flying around there with a whole bunch of airplanes that you can't see. You don't know if they're talking to each other and you, there's a real risk of, or there is a risk of midair. And it's only going to get worse. So we talk about F-35 and 6th Gen flying with not just loyal wingmen, but controlling different types of vehicles out there unmanned with different capabilities, all of a sudden it's not just me and some drone, it's me and a bunch of drones. It's a swarm out there <laughs> and I need some way to control all of them. So we all communicate, we all avoid each other. And this collision technology would permit us to do that without risking ourselves, just flying along, executing a mission, just ourselves, forget everybody else. All right. So that brings us full circle to John's question. And if I remember correctly, it was, could we have a software patch as he put it? to automate in-flight refueling. And I'll just simply say, while there were long flights where I was fatigued and didn't want to do in-flight refueling, I always thought, hey, this is when it really matters. The chips are down. And so I want to make sure I still have the ability to do it because what if that software patch maybe doesn't work? But ultimately, I mean, I could see this. You get close enough to two aircraft, they could communicate well and be very precise, put one where the other needs to go. So I don't know. What do you think of John's question? You know this. It's the hardest task we do flying up and away from the ground. Air-to-air -air refueling is the hardest task to do. Let's be fair. Probe and joke refueling is, not to offend listeners, it's the manly task. Doing Air Force boom receptacle air refueling is the simple version of this. And in the U.S. forces, we have both, right? We have the right. big tankers to take us across the ocean. But in the Navy, you need the capability of putting a pod in the back of a Hornet. It used to be an A4, an A7, an S2, et cetera. And it gives you the flexibility and adaptability. I've done lots of both, and I'd rather have a big boom and a receptacle, like the Air Force way, it's hard doing probe and joke. It leads to mm -hmm. pilot-induced oscillations. Uh, everybody's damaged a basket. Uh, everybody's damaged a probe, beaten up the airplanes, ripped off AOA veins off hornets. If you haven't done it, you know someone who's done it. And every single one of us has a refueling story somewhere. And oh, by the way, some people have lots of them. <laughs> Not always the pilot's fault, but often it is. Uh -huh. There was a trial to automate the sense of refueling to aircraft done at NASA, Dryden Flight Research Center at Edwards years ago. 
And we and the F-35 tried to automate it for the B and the C, or at least make it easier. Air refueling is the hardest task we do. F-35 is the easiest aircraft to do probe and drogue of the seven different airplanes that I've done probe and drogue off. Hmm. Way easier than a Hornet even, but it's still, there's a human factor in that. And so we tried to make it easy, almost automate it. We tried to turn it almost into like an autopilot function. And I won't get into geekdom too much, but basically you would set up behind the basket with your probe. I'm sure everybody by now knows probe and basket and you've talked about it. And then basically you set this mode and it's like being in the hover for F-35 where you're perfectly in position. And then if you had to go up to get to the basket, instead of what you do in a Hornet, what you did in a Hornet was you rotated the aircraft and the probe and you climbed up to the basket. In the F-35, we would go directly up like an elevator or down. We would move forward or back, like in the hover in Stovall mode, we would just move straight forward, straight back. You're almost like in a hover right behind the basket. We worked on it in the sim, well, all the flight control development. We practiced it in our flight control development sim in Fort Worth. I was part of the group, thought it was fabulous, going to be even easier than probe and drogue is now. And then we colossally failed to understand the interaction of the bow wave between us. And in this case, it was the Hornet tanker that we were using out of uh, VX-23 impacts. And all of a sudden, we had closure rates that we didn't account for in our system and scared the heck out of everybody that trialed it, had to abandon it. I'll tell you why we can't automate it. Okay. Because we can't account for the interaction of that big, long hose and the basket on all the turbulence and the dynamics of that. It's just so wild. You know it. You've done it on so many different things. Like, I don't care how good you are. Some days you're squeezing that stick so hard, you're melting the rubber because (laughs) it's just terror-filled because you can't control that. So I don't think we'll ever be able to automate that particular function for a Navy style. Maybe boom refueling, yes, but not in the Navy world. You just made me think of a question, Billy. Why didn't they put the boom receptacle in an F-35C? Because when we go to a joint operation like Iraq or Afghanistan, we always have to go look for a big Navy tanker. Now, for the reasons you stated, there's a reason for the probe and drogue around the boat. But couldn't they have just built both of those into a Navy airplane? And if there was an Air Force tanker available, we could go get gas? You think they ever looked at that? Well, I tell you, there is room in there. And I know that because the early proposition for Canada when Canada was actually going to buy their aircraft on time, was potentially to have both because at the time Canadians only had an Airbus tanker, still only have an Airbus tanker in KC-130s. And so they were going to have to satisfy the probe and drogue requirement for Canada, but still have the receptacle that was in the A model. So yeah, you could have put the plumbing in there and made that happen. I think you just add one more complicated element to the building of the airplane and that becomes too hard. Yeah, maybe. But boy, when all there is is an Air Force tanker around and it's got no warps on its wingtips, it would sure be nice. But all right, fair enough. What else? Anything else about collision avoidance systems that we talked about today? I thought you guys had a really awesome discussion. Well, thanks for letting us do that. We're passionate about it. I think it's clear that Cinco has emotion invested into that. I've done it for years and believe it's important. I think I want to come back to the topic of over-communicating. I don't think we can over-communicate it enough. I think we need to get converts in the Navy and the Hornet community. So this forum with you and all the Navy guys that follow your show will certainly help educate them on what's out there. 
I don't think we can tell the story often enough until it's cemented in every single fleet out there. And then we can walk away and find something else to champion. Cool. Well, thank you for executing the discussion when I couldn't get around to it. And you and Cinco did a great job. We'll wrap it up by reminding everyone the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the hosts and our guests and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. And Billy, I assume you speak for yourself. Thanks for your help today. I mean, did you enjoy the process enough to want to come back and help some more? I'm always looking for a good host to uh, cover these exciting topics. Hey, Jello, it was lots of fun. I really had a good time. It's fun topics to work on. Loved talking to Cinco. Loved all the prep work for this and getting back in the books and talking to people about how all this works. So yeah, we'll find some topics that would be fun to present in this podcast and go work at those in the future. Oh, that'd be great. You certainly have a pretty big Rolodex and you, uh, folks you know, and you could talk the latest F-16s. You could probably talk Block 3 F-18s. So hopefully we'll get you back. I'd love to. All right. Well, that'll do it for this week then. For everyone else, we'll see you back here in 10 days for another new guest, co-host actually, and he's going to help us understand what naval aviation might look like in the 2040s. We'll see you then. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast brought to you by BBR Productions. Got a question for the show? Email us at questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-BOCK-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to follow us on your favorite social media platform and check out our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. For exclusive content and to help support the show, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.